And now, finally, we are getting to the good part, the good part of Revelation. Last time we saw a lot of scary imagery. Uh, we saw the we saw the coming of Christ in fire to to judge and, and bring destruction on his enemies. We saw we saw the final judgment on the, the great white throne where where Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. Uh, uh, those whose whose names are recorded in the book of life, of course, are brought into eternal fellowship with the holy God. We saw that. And and those whose names are not written in the book of life are judged solely by their works and then of course those that are judged solely by their works will be cast into the lake of fire uh, where there will be eternal conscious torment for all those who are found in their sins we saw those those things in chapter 20 and uh, it was uh, up until this point it's pretty pretty depressing pretty depressing picture but but now in revelation 21 we move past the final judgment and john sees this new creation this new heavens and earth uh, remember that based on based on scripture we differentiated between the intermediate state and the eternal state if you don't remember uh the intermediate state is is when you die and and go to heaven go to be with uh be with the lord perfect fellowship with him that's where you you dwell that's where your soul dwells uh but this is not the final state of all of us who pass from this life um, that's the intermediate state. The eternal state is going to be when creation passes away and there's a new heavens, new earth, and we'll dwell in that new creation with God, with the Lamb for all eternity. It'll be real life, just like we just like we live right now, except that we'll be perfected in our new bodies and, and there won't be any more sin and there won't be any more sorrow, won't be any more death or curse, and, and we'll dwell in the very real presence of God, just like Adam and Eve did at the very beginning. And that's what we're going to see. Uh, here in Revelation twenty one twenty two, these last two chapters of the book, uh, we're coming coming to the end. Um, but what we're going to see is that the end of it all is is going to bear striking resemblance and almost identical language to how this all began. Uh, in the next chapter, chapter twenty two, we're going to lay all that out. But it is it's incredibly interesting to me that that the same language used in the Garden of Eden in the first two chapters of Genesis is the language that's used in Revelation twenty two of the new city, the new creation, which will be our our eternal home. We're, we'll dwell there physically with God as Adam and Eve dwelled physically with God. The tree of life will be there. The stream of living water will f- flow out of the city, the new city. Like it flew flowed out of Eden, uh, but but we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. That's all in twenty two, and uh, you could probably tell I get excited about about how all this fits together uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's uh it's pretty enthralling to me. But first, we're going to look at chapter twenty one, and this is where John sees this this new city, this this perfect dwelling place of God that comes down out of heaven. Um, and it's the perfect dwelling place of God's people as well. And we're going to see that in this chapter, uh, John is seeing the fulfillment of a vast amount of prophecies from from Isaiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. We're also going to see that it's uh, uh, the city's not just a city; it's a perfect temple. It's a temple city of God, the temple of of worship and fellowship that that the Garden of Eden pointed toward. Uh, the garden was a temple, yes, it was, uh, and uh, it's also what the tabernacle pointed toward, and also what Solomon's temple pointed toward. It's what all of the Bible has been leading up to, this perfect city, this this new Jerusalem, this temple tabernacle of God, where God and man dwell together in perfection. 
So let me say this before we begin. If I go through and read all the Old Testament references uh, to each allusion that's here in Revelation 21, we're going to be here for hours. Uh, so what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to take I'm going to take the chapter in in sections. Uh, I'll read individual verses as well, but I'm going to try to take some parts of it in sections and give you the meaning background of some of the references. But uh, but I've written all the Old Testament references in uh, in the outline at uh, at uh, jasonvalada.com. So if you want those, you can go and get that outline and they're all listed there. Uh, and once again, I will say, please check out what I'm saying. I've been I've been known to misquote or misstate uh, verse numbers and, and things like that. So make sure you fact check what I say before, uh, before we begin, you need to make sure that you have your Bible open and you have a pen and you're able to write down the references and the things that I'm talking about. And then you go back and check them to make sure that I haven't made a mistake in my quotations or anything like that. So let's begin with, with John's vision in uh, chapter 21, verse one says "Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea after the judgment where the believers, unbelievers, are separated. We saw that in the, the last chapter. The wicked are thrown into the lake of fire, but there is a city that is made for believers. But before we get to that city, we have the introduction here in verse one of this new heavens and this new earth. And it's worth noting here that um, uh, John says that he sees the new heaven and earth because the old heaven and earth are gone. Uh, but he doesn't really describe this new heaven and this new earth. Instead, he's just going to go right into talking about this new city that he sees coming down out of heaven. Now, there's questions to be asked about this. Does this mean that the city is the new heavens and the earth? Uh, and and I, I think that it I think that it does. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, we should we should make note that this chapter is a fulfillment of, I mean, a a bunch. I was looking for a technical word, but all I can say is a bunch, a bunch of Old Testament prophecies. Even here in the very first verse, he says, he says, I saw new heavens and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. Well, that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 65, 17, Isaiah uh, 60, the last uh, section of, of the book of Isaiah. This is probably 60 through 66 or even even from the 50s to the to the 66 talks about this this end time perfection that will be exist between God and man and he will dwell on Mount Zion and and just all this language of there will be no more you know that's where the wolf will lie down with the lamb and, and all these uh, all these uh wonderful prophecies about what is to be and what we see here in the very first verse of John is he is quoting Isaiah chapter 65 verse 17 it says in, in Isaiah 65, 17, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And also, you see the same thing in Isaiah 66, 22 and 23. It says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So not only is this new heavens on uh, a prophesied uh, uh, thing in the Old Testament, but it's one that will endure forever. It says uh, the new heavens and the new earth that I make will remain in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22. So this should draw our mind immediately to the fact that John is seeing a vision 
But he is describing that vision using Old Testament imagery, symbols, prophetic speech, those kind of things. So just like we have seen throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to have to probe the depths of these Old Testament illusions to uh, to uh, understand what John's trying to tell us. Um, So what does it mean when he says we can kind of understand the new heavens and the new earth? We've seen that through the new the New Testament about the the elements will dissolve with fervent heat and all of this uh, cursed creation will pass away we're going to see as we look through this chapter that the separation between heaven and earth is going to dissolve and uh, the two will come together and God will dwell with men uh, but what does it mean that there will be no more sea uh, that's a good question and there's a few possibilities as to how we can interpret that so I'm going to just list four four of the main interpretations and I'll tell you where I fall and you can just decide for yourself uh, when it says there's a new heaven and a new earth and there's no more sea what does it mean that the sea is no more um, well there's some people that say that it, this the sea represents the cosmic chaos you know the uh, like in, in Genesis the very beginning of Genesis the waters of creation you know the waters uh, w- represent chaos and, and of course the spirit hovered over the face of the waters and then, then God spoke and all the things started to come into order. And so this might represent that uh, uh, there's no more chaos in the creation and that it's all orderly and all perfected. Uh, it's possible. That's a possible interpretation. Uh, that's not the one that I hold, but it's very possible. Um, the second one is that this one's very, um, very popular among people is that uh, the sea represents the rebellious nations that persecute God's remnant. There'll be no more rebellious nations. There'll be no more uh, persecutors of God's people. Now, I do believe that there will be no more rebellious nations, um, but I'm not one that holds this view either that this is what John's talking about. Uh, for for a text, I think we've talked about that before. You know, the beast rose out of the sea, and the the sea often is the realm of the Gentiles that's spoken of in the Old Testament. You can see the that the rebellious nations are, are listed are, are equated with the ocean, the sea in Isaiah fifty seven twenty. Uh, so there is some biblical background for that view, and if you hold that view, you know, uh, more power to you. Um, it's not worth arguing about. Uh, it's very possible that that could be the correct interpretation. Um, the one that I hold is kind of a mixture of two. Um, the sea here represents the place of the dead. And the reason why I say that is because, of course, it's in the, in the Old Testament as well in a few different places. But the closest um, antecedent to the sea that we have here, we've seen just a, a few verses back in chapter 20, if you listen to that last one, uh, the last podcast, it said that, you know, when the great white throne judgment came, what happened? The sea gave up its dead and Hades gave up its dead and they were they were judged at the white, the great white throne judgment. Remember, the chapter divisions weren't in the original. It was just a, a, a complete block of text. And so that you have just heard that the sea gave up the dead that were in it and and now it says there will be no more sea. So and again, we'll see that in verse four of this very chapter where it says death will be no more. So I see that the uh, I kind of hold that the sea represents the place of the dead. The the what we've seen about the sea giving up is dead. There won't be any more death. There won't be any more dead. Uh, there won't be any more place of the dead because there will be no more death. It'll be eternal life forever. But there's an also there's also another interpretation that really catches my fancy. 
And I'm I'm not sure that I I'm not sure that I can jump in wholeheartedly with it, but I sure do I sure do resonate with it. Uh, is that the sea represents the we're going to see temple imagery all through this chapter, and so if we apply that imagery, we haven't got there yet, but if we apply that imagery to what we're seeing, remember we talked about the sea. There was a bronze laver in the temple where you had to come and wash. It, uh, a laver is like a, a basin, a big huge basin, and it was called the sea. You can see that in Second Chronicles. And, and kings and Solomon's temple and all those, they called it the sea. Uh, and so uh, you had to come to that labor. You had to come to that basin and you had to wash to purify yourself before you entered toward the altar where sacrifices were made and all those kind of things. And so this could mean, and some take it to mean, that there's no more need for purification before we come into the presence of God because we are in the new heavens and the new earth. We are in the eschatological temple, the new city. Now, that um, that's very possible, just like the rest, but there, there's something about that that resonates with me. So you can take whatever it is that you think the sea is out of, you know, the, there's a few other interpretations, but I really don't think there's much merit to them, so I haven't listed them. One is either, it's either, uh, the ones that I've listed are, it's either cosmic chaos, just there's no more chaos, everything is in order, uh, there's no more rebellious nations, that's a possibility and probably the most popular one. Uh, I believe it is the, there's no more death, there's no more the place of the dead is gone because the sea has just been said to give up its dead. And then there's an interpretation that this represents the sea that was in the temple that you came to wash, the bronze laver that you came to wash before you headed to the altar. So whatever whatever interpretation you take, the effect is uh, the effect is the same, that there is no more separation uh, between God and man, and there is no more uh, effect of the curse upon the creation. Uh, so that's what it means. In the verse 2, John goes directly from just saying. He doesn't describe it. He just says there's a new heavens and a new earth. And then in verse 2, he goes right into describing this new city. He says, and I saw the holy city, the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. John sees the holy city coming down from heaven. Uh, this is the inbreaking of heaven and earth, the the connecting of heaven and earth. No longer are they to be separated. Those perfected in the new earth have access to God and uh, the city as the perfection of, of fellowship is realized. Uh, notice that this city is called Jerusalem. But we will see that this is the perfect Jerusalem. This is what Jerusalem was always meant to be, the city of God. This Jerusalem is described as a bride that's adorned for her husband. And this is going to be important, and we'll see it again in a minute. The bride is the city. I haven't proven that to you. I've just stated it. I'll prove it to you in the next few verses. But in this chapter, the bride is the city. And we'll also see that the bride is set in opposition to the harlot that was cast off, which we saw was the old Jerusalem. Uh, so here we have the harlot, the old Jerusalem, the old Judaic system was cast off and, and sent away for her apostasy. And God is taking this bride, this new Jerusalem uh, that is perfected, adorned. We're, we're, we're seeing the marriage supper of the lamb as this city comes down as a bride adorned for her husband. We're going to see all that as we walk through this chapter. So if you're not biting off on all that just yet, uh, just stay with me as we walk through this. 
uh, the bride has been prepared. It's been prepared by God himself as his bride. Now, the city depicted as a bride, of course, we just said, anticipates the marriage of the lamb that comes when all is fulfilled. And it, it's, a, it's a picture of what Isaiah foretold in uh, when Isaiah saw the perfect Jerusalem, the perfect city, uh, the eschatological city in Isaiah 61, verse 10. He said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. He said, he has wrapped me in this robe of righteousness as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So this city is not just, it's not just, you know, a cool place to live. This is this is God's presence de- uh, dwelling with his people. It's a fulfillment of what the entire Bible has been leading up to this marriage supper of the lamb where the promise of God's presence. I will be your God and you will be my people is finally consummated and fulfilled in all things. And verse three says, <clears throat> And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. At last, God's promise of dwelling with his people in holiness and perfection it's been fulfilled. This is what the Old Testament prophets have been looking forward to the entire time as we have read through, as you read through the Old Testament. This is what they have been preaching to the people about. In Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-six through 28, it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God and they will be my people and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Same thing we see in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11 and 12. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Same thing we see in Zechariah chapter 2. Uh, verses 10 through 11 sing for joy and be glad O daughter of Zion for behold I am coming and I will dwell in your midst declares the Lord many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you those who are perfected in Christ both Jew and Gentile are now God's people and enjoy the fellowship of adoption and the very presence of God with him the promise has been fulfilled I will be your God and you will be my people the tabernacle of God is among uh, among men he he is uh, in their presence in perfection and physical God is not physical, but you know what I mean. We are physically in the presence of God, just as Adam and Eve uh, walked in with God in the cool of the day in the garden. That is how we will experience God, the, the way that it was always supposed to be. And we'll see that more and more in the in the next chapter. Verse four says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have 
have passed away. Now, many of us have quoted this verse, uh, looking forward to the time when, when all things will be made right and there won't be any more curse or curse or suffering. We won't have to deal with, uh, uh, trials and temptations of this life and the fallen creation has passed away and of course the new has come And but we also need to make sure that we see that John is once again quoting uh, from Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah showing the fulfillment of the Jewish hope in the Messiah that was to come and of course we know that is Christ who is the Lamb. In Isaiah 25 8 he says he will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Now, uh, as we look at uh, this this new city, this new heavens and new earth, uh, before we get to the descriptions of it, if we as we look through uh, Revelation 21 verses five through eight, God is going to declare the blessings and the condemnation uh, that goes with the presence of God, uh, because the fulfillment of all has uh, it's come. The full blessings of the presence of God uh, are bestowed upon those in the city, and nothing nothing unclean or sinful will ever enter into the creation again. That's what we're going to see in verses 5 through 8. So let me just read verses 5 through 7. It's quite a chunk of text, but it'll it'll help us to understand, um, understand more what's going on rather than just take it one verse at a time. Verses 5 through 7 says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. Uh, Literally, that says, It has become. Uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Uh, Now, Lots of allusions to Old Testament passages there. Of course, you probably recognize the water of life, the waters of life. Uh, Isaiah 55 one says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, buy and eat. Uh, come, buy and eat. Come, uh, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. If you thirst, you come to the waters. Uh, but it could also be a reference to the living waters, the waters of life. In John chapter 4, verse 10, where Jesus, uh, Jesus answered, and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, talking to the woman at the well, and who it was, and who and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living waters. And so we see the fulfillment even even here. I'm making all things new, says God. Uh, you need to write, he tells John to write these things down because this is what uh, creation has been moving toward. Of course, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Here's that sees all the verses in Isaiah like three or four times where God says, I'm the first and I'm the last uh, the beginning and the end. And he says, and now it has come. I'm going to give the one who thirsts. I'm going to be the fulfillment. I'm going to bring forth the living water, the springs of living water that is without cost. And if you overcome, you'll inherit these things and I'll be your God and you'll be my son. Now, a lot of people take, we've seen this before in the letters, a lot of people take overcome if you overcome come as some kind of special class of Christians, some kind of special overcomers. But we've seen in first John five four that all those overcome uh this is the this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our 
faith. And what we have here, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but what we have here is a connection. We have a connection between the end of Revelation and the coming of the promise all the way back to the letters to the seven churches. You remember one of the facets of the letters of the seven churches in every single letter was a promise to the overcomer. The one who overcomes, I will write on him a new name. The one who overcomes, I will give to him of the tree of life. The one who overcomes, I will let him sit in the on the throne with me as my father is let me sit on his throne uh the one who overcomes the one who overcomes in every single letter there's an overcomer promise well all of this has come to pass all of this is said and done and now we see that the promise is is uh fulfilled in the end in this new city in this new jerusalem and we have a connection uh between you know if you were in one of those first century churches and you heard over and over overcomer overcomer if you're an overcomer if you overcome if you conquer uh and then now all of a sudden here you see that same language again this letter is for you this letter is for you this is not just um this is not just some fanciful tale about what's going to happen uh, 12,000 years from now or 5,000 years from now or whatever. This is a, a, a real uh, hope and expectation that those in the first century are supposed to have. They're supposed to keep the words of this book, as he says in chapter 1. And it is a real expectation of what we who are reading this this book today should have. Uh, he says, if those who overcome, I will, I will, I, you will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. We're talking about the perfect physical, uh, perfected adoption and redemption of, of believers. But there is also a host of people that will never enter this city. Verse eight says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These references, these reference uh, people whose lives are characterized by these practices. It doesn't mean that anyone's ever told a lie any time in their life, um, uh, or done any of these sins at one time or another will be cast in the lake of fire. I mean, if that was so, no one would ever populate the new city. Um, but what it means, the, these are those that we saw in the last chapter whose hearts have not been changed and their names are not written in the book of life. So their lives are characterized by these sins. Uh, we will see in the very last verse of this chapter, once again, that the only criterion for entering into the new city is to have one's name written in the book of life. We're going to see that at the end of this chapter. And, of course, we know from the whole of Scripture that regeneration changes the heart of the believer. So they hunger and thirst for righteousness and not for sin. Uh, these people, uh, those who are murderers and sorcerers and idolaters, they're set against those who have been resurrected. Notice the language. Notice that they are said to have their part in the lake of fire, just as those we saw in the uh, previous chapter who are written in the book are said, they said, blessed are they because they have their part in the first resurrection. And so 
you see these these people are the antithesis of those who have had their names written in the book of life it's interesting to me also you, you see the word sorcerer uh, that Greek word that is translated sorcerer is where we get the word pharmacy and pharmacological and uh, you know drugs and those kind of things it, it doesn't necessarily you can't import a modern meaning into the word and think because we get our word from it that's what the word means it means sorcerer but it's interesting to me that uh, in those days, sorcery was the use of these kind of uh, potions and drugs and, and pharmaceuticals and those kind of things to uh, to to do their magic arts. Um, that's just a little tidbit for you. Uh, so now we're going to we're going to look at the description of this new city, the perfect Jerusalem. Uh, John has kind of set everything up for us. He's shown us the new heavens and new earth. He said, I've seen this city coming down from heaven. He showed us the promises of God that he, he makes to those that are citizens of this city because their names have been recorded and the condemnation that goes with being not admitted into this city. Uh, so now he is going to describe the city for us now. Now, we're going to see uh, some amazing parallels with the perfect city of God prophesied about in the Old Testament prophets, of course. And we're going to see some parallels with the temple imagery. We're going to see some parallels with the tabernacle imagery in the, in the Exodus. Uh, so I need you to be aware of the fact that this doesn't come, this, this imagery, this description of the city doesn't come out of a vacuum. It doesn't come from it nowhere. It comes from the prophetic uh, preaching about the true city the perfected city in the end and it comes from the descriptions of the temple and the tabernacle in the old testament and we'll flesh those out a little as we go through in verse 9 it says then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying come here i will show you the bride the wife of the lamb now verse 10 i'm going to read that as long with it it says notice in verse 9 though before we read it it says i will show you what I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who is the wife of the lamb? Doesn't take a New Testament scholar to know who the wife of the lamb is. The bride of Christ is the church. Now, that's what John is told. The angel says, come here and I will show you the bride. But look at what John sees when the angel takes him to show him. It says, verse 10 says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me what? The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So here, notice John hears, I'm going to show you the wife of the lamb, the bride. And the angel comes and says, I'm going to show it to you. And when the angel comes and takes John, he shows him this new Jerusalem. So he's, we are equating the bride of Christ with this new Jerusalem, the bride of the lamb. So here is the same pattern that we've seen before in Revelation. Do you remember it? John hears something, but he sees something different. You remember the those parallels that we saw? John heard the Lion of Judah, but when he turned, what did he see? He saw a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We saw John heard the number of the redeemed as 144,000, but when he turned to look, he saw a multitude that no man can number. Here we have the same thing. He hears, he is told that he will be shown the bride, the, la the bride of the lamb, the wife of the lamb. 
But when he looks, he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem. It is uh, it is the fulfillment of what Jerusalem was always supposed to be. The people of God, the city of God, the fellowship with God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And we're going to see in the descriptions of the city that that includes both Jew and Gentile. But the, the reality is that the bride of Christ is is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has pointed to up until this point. And this is this is where we see the parallel between the unfaithful harlot and the beautiful bride that's perfected. You see, the exact same language is used to introduce both. Remember the remember I told you in the beginning the harlot is the old Jerusalem. We saw that. Uh, in listen to this language. In Revelation 17, the first three verses, we, we went through that in an earlier podcast. Revelation 17, 1 through 3, and the verses that we just read, verses 9 and 10 and 21, uh, both use the exact same introductory languages language to introduce the woman that they are showing us. In Revelation 17, 1 and 3, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Okay, and in verse nine and ten that we just read in chapter 21, it says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Do you see the introductory language is almost identical? (coughs) Excuse me. These two are being set in opposition. Come here. I'm going to show you this harlot. Uh, and we saw in Revelation 17 that this harlot is wearing the robes of the high priest and she's riding on this scarlet beast. It doesn't take a New, a New Testament scholar to understand what's being said. The, the harlot is the old Jerusalem. And here we see the bride of the lamb, the perfect wife. Uh, this is the new Jerusalem. And just like Paul sets the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem against each other in uh, the end of the book of Galatians. And the writer of Hebrews does the same thing at the close of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. This is what John is seeing, the antithesis between the harlot who is cast off because of her adultery and her idolatry and the taking of this new Jerusalem, this perfected city that is going to be in fellowship with God uh, for forever. In verse 9, it says, uh, one of the seven angels, seven bowls of the last plagues came and spoke to me. Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. John is carried away to see this new city. John's going to be shown here the fulfillment of salvation history. This is what everything has been moving toward. Uh, now, we need to, before we discuss the city itself, we need to remember the symbolic nature of the book of Revelation. Uh, we're not necessarily talking about what the new city looks like we are being told what the new city is like now that's an important distinction to make now is is the descriptions we're going to see that the city's a cube and there's a high wall and uh it's this many miles long and are, are those are those is it possible that that is actually what the city's going to look like and it's literally john is just sitting there describing yes it's possible we don't know i don't know that uh that he is not giving perfect uh physical material descriptions of what this city will look like i'm uh no one knows we haven't seen this new city yet but if we 
go, if we continue our interpretive model as we have throughout Revelation, we are going to see that there are hints, there are suggestions within this text that scream that John is telling us not necessarily what the city looks like, but what it is like, just in the same way that he told us, uh, you know, Satan is a dragon. You know, Satan doesn't really look like a dragon. He's saying Satan is like the dragon. He is uh, dangerous and deceptive, just like he said, Jesus is the lamb. Now, when you see Jesus in heaven, you're not going to be looking at a lamb with seven horns and and 10 eyes or 10 horns and seven eyes, whichever one it was. Uh, But that is what Jesus is like. He is the lamb, the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So he's not necessarily telling us what it looks like. He's telling us what it is like. John's vision of this new perfect Jerusalem is also going to mirror the vision of the perfect Jerusalem that's given to us in Ezekiel uh, chapter 40 through chapter 48. Uh, And there you see the angel measuring the temple. And we've seen that before as we looked at Revelation chapter 11. So it would do you well to go and read Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. Uh, I don't have time to do it now and I'm not going to. I'll make a few references here and there. But it's almost like John is taking uh, taking this descriptive language he's using to describe the city from Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. So let's look at how John describes the city after we've got all of those caveats under our belt. Uh, Verse 10 and 11 says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. The first thing you see is that the glory of God is with this city. It has the glory of God. And this is important to those who know their Old Testament because it shows that the glory of God has returned turn to dwell with the people. If you remember in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel saw the Shekinah glory of God depart from the temple and it was departing in judgment. And Ezekiel prophesies the judgment on the nation because God's, uh, God's glory has departed from the temple. Uh, but Isaiah foretells that there's coming a time when the glory of God will again dwell with his people. Isaiah 60 verse 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you for behold darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples but the lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear on you isaiah 60 verse 19 says the same thing it says no longer will you have the sun for light by day nor for brightness will the moon give you light but you will have the lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Here John's showing us the fulfillment of these promises in the perfected Jerusalem. And then John uh, continues to describe uh, the gates of the city just as they appear in Ezekiel. In verses 12 and 13 here, it says, The city had a great great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names were written on them, talking about the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. So there are a few things that we see in these verses. First, there are 12 gates, and at each of the 12 gates, there is an angel standing guard. Now, that's kind of strange uh, language, kind of a strange thing to uh, imagine, isn't it? Uh, what image would that raise in your mind, the angel guarding that the gate of the sanctuary of God? Uh, of course, it brings 
brings our minds back to the Garden of Eden, which was itself intended to be a garden temple of God. If you want to know more about that, you can see my my Genesis podcast that we're going through right now. The Garden of Eden was intended to be the perfect temple. Um, And and of course, Adam messed it up. And after Adam is exiled, God placed cherubim. Cherubim is a plural word at the gate of the garden with a flaming sword to bar the to bar the entry uh, to the to the to the sinful, to those who were, were not allowed to take of the tree of life. It's interesting also to note that the images of cherubim uh, standing guard were also present in the tapestries and the decor of the temple, as well as the images of cherubim placed on the Ark of the Covenant. And so all those pictures pointed toward the fulfillment in the perfect city where no unholiness and sin will enter. It's God's power, God's God's cherubs that are at the gate that, that you know, uh, are guarding the gate just as they guarded the temple. Now, uh, a lot of people extrapolate from the descriptions that we see here in the New Jerusalem that, well, if there's angels at the gates, then there must be evil people outside the gates that are wanting to get in. That's not necessarily so. Remember, John is painting a picture for us with the words and the images of the Old Testament. The point that he's making is that nothing unclean will enter. We will remember man was man was refused access to the garden of God. He was refused access to the presence of God when Adam was thrown out. But he here, this city is equated with that garden, with the guards standing at the gate, so to speak. But we will see that those who have the name of the book in the book of life are allowed in, are citizens of this of this city. We're going to see here in a moment in this chapter that it says the gates are never closed, never closed by day, and so. This is not a picture of uh, a military base that only some people can get in and there's a horde of people trying to get on the get in on the outside or anything like that. It's simply a picture of this is the perfected temple that was always supposed to be and man was kept from it. But now man through Christ is allowed into it. Uh, these gates and these verses also have names written on them. Uh, they're names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there, there are many people have speculated as to why they're names appear on the gates. Uh, but to be honest, I, I really don't see any big interpretational difficulty. Um, we've already seen that the true people of God, the multitude that no man can number that follow the lamb are associated with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. We saw that as in the 144,000. And we also need to take into account that, of, I mean, it is the by the people of Israel that the Messiah came forth and that it is through him, through Jesus, who is the perfected Israel that, you know, he purchased entry into the city with his blood. So their names are on the gates because it is by Israel that entry was given. Salvation came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It was Israel. It was the first century church, uh, beginning with the apostles in Acts, was completely 100% Jewish. You know, Paul and Peter and all those who met in the temple, Acts chapter 2, all those who saved at Pentecost were all Jewish. They were from different nations, but they were all Jewish. They were, I mean, the early church was completely Jewish. And it wasn't until the stoning of Stephen that the church went Went out and began to preach to Samaria and to the outer edge of Judea and then, of course, to the, the utter ends of the earth. And so 
salvation did come from true Israel. It came from the perfect Israel, those who have fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That was Peter and Paul and John and Matthew and all those who were preaching and Stephen and, and all of those. They were, they were the remnant, the remnant of Israel. And so it doesn't really take a, take a big, huge jump of interpretational logic or anything like that to understand why the 12 tribes names are written on the gates, uh, because it is through them that the, the gospel went forth, uh, to bring the nations into the, into the, uh, uh, the people of God, and and we see the gates on you know all sides of the city. Three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west. Um, this is this is God gave specific instructions in the wilderness that three of the tribes of Israel should camp in order, in a specific order, around the four sides of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of, in in the wilderness was to sit right in the middle, and you had three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the east, three, three tribes to the west, just as the gates on the four sides of the perfect city. So these are not images that people who understood uh, or who were familiar with the Old Testament would have, you know, had very much problem with at all. They would understand that, you know, what we're seeing here is we're seeing God's presence dwelling with his people, just like it did as they were in the wilderness. He was caring for them and protecting them and, and all those things. And they were commanded. They were given spots. They weren't just, you know, the people of Israel wasn't just a horde moving through. Uh, the tabernacle was specifically instructed to be set up in the middle and the tribes by name, by order were specifically given place. This is where your tribe is going to camp. This is where your tribe is going to camp. And it was around the tabernacle, just like these gates are around the city. Now, um, uh, we're, this is also a direct parallel of, of what Ezekiel saw in the perfect Jerusalem. Um, I'm going to read to you Ezekiel 48 verses 31 through 34. It says, uh, these are the exits of the cities talking about the eschatological temple uh, on the north side for 4,500 cubits by measurement shall be the gates of the city named for the tribes of Israel, three gates to the north, the gate of Reuben, one, the gate of Judah, one, the gate of Levi, one on the east. East side, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates. The gate of Joseph, one. The gate of Benjamin, one. The gate of Dan, one. And on and on it goes to describe three gates on each side, north, south, east, and west of this eschatological city. So this is nothing, this is nothing brilliantly new and that we should be, we should be digging into to find some mystical interpretational thing about what this could mean. These are pictures from the Old Testament. They're pictures from prophecies that were given about the fulfillment of God's promises and the uh, perfecting of God's people. This is imagery that is not new to the people who were steeped in these prophecies in these Old Testament scriptures. Uh, what we're also going to see in, in verse 14 of Revelation 21 is that there are also 12 foundation stones around the city and the wall of the city. This is verse 14 uh, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. Now there's some debate here about the proper translation of the word foundation or foundation stone. Does it mean stones that are in the foundation of the city or does it mean foundations itself? Like there are 12 platforms, 12 uh platforms within the city 
to be honest, you can make a case. You can make a pretty good case for both. So, um, you know, if 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 um, if you take it to be platforms or foundations in the city, uh, you know, I, I don't have any problem with that. We, you know, knock yourself out. Um, I tend to take them as foundation stones. And the reason why I do is because they're going to be uh, described as precious stones here in, in Revelation 21. But in all fairness, it, it could mean that the platforms, the foundations are just adorned with these precious stones. So uh, I take them as foundation stones. So that's that's the way I'm going to take them. And that's what we're going to that's what we're going to talk to. Them. That's what we're going to see. And another reason why I take them that way is that uh, it, it kind of mirrors what we see in First Kings five seventeen, where Solomon's building his temple. It says, then the king commanded and they quarried great stones, costly stones to lay the foundation of the house with cut stones. And so I take them as foundation stones of uh, of the new city. Uh, Jesus, uh, not Jesus, but Paul also said in Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and, and so on and so on and so forth. And so I take these to say, to mean, what he's describing here is the the gates of the city have the 12 tribes of Israel's name on them. But the foundation stones of the city uh, have the names of the apostles uh, uh, of the Lamb. Um, first, of course, it reminds us uh, uh, having the name on these stones reminds us of the stones in the high priest's ephod in Exodus as he intercedes for the people. When you uh, if you go back and read those in, in Exodus, uh, Exodus 20. 28, I believe, uh, off the top of my head, um, each had precious stones. The the ephod of the of the high priest had precious stones on it. Uh, it had twelve on it, and eat on each one of those precious stones, those different, you know, those sapphire and, and ruby and emerald and all those kind of things. On each one of those stones had one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And what he was doing was he was going into the holy of holies to to intercede for those for those tribes that are written on those stones. Well, here you see that uh, that on the names of the foundation of this city are the apostles of the Lamb. It is by the gospel that they preached, that they received from Christ and sent out to the world that this city is built and laid. He is we he is the foundation. The gospel is the foundation of the uh, the construction and the existence of this new city. And second, it also tells us that uh, this uh, this new Jerusalem is is built for the people of God that includes both Jew and Gentile. It includes all those who are saved by grace through faith from Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. There aren't two different programs or two different plans for two different kinds of people. Uh, this city includes uh, the the Israel of God. It includes those uh, in the Old Testament who trusted in the coming Messiah. It includes those in the New Testament, whether Jew or Gentile who have been perfected in Christ. And so that's kind of uh, kind of uh, getting into the descriptions of the city. But next, John's going to show the dimensions of the city. And this is where we need to pay close attention. So many people try to calculate up the dimensions in order to see how many miles the city is or what kind of area it's going to cover. 
I don't think that's John's point here. Um, it's possible, but I don't think that it is. Remember, we're not being shown what the city looks like. We're being shown what the city is like. We're giving, we're being given uh, prophetic language that is taken directly from allusions of, from the Old Testament. So we're going to do what we always do. We're going to look at the Old Testament allusions in order to draw out the meaning that John is uh, that John is writing in these texts. Um, before we let's just read verse 15 through 17 and then we'll uh, <clears throat> we'll talk about it. It says the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. It is four square it is a perfect square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia, which is about 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. That means it's a perfect cube. Length, width, and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits, about 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements, which that text means the the angel measuring the temple is using human measurements. Um <clears throat> Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, um, which is a good translation, nothing wrong with it, but they translate 12,000 stadia as 1,500 miles, and they translate 144 cubits as 72 yards. I think this is a mistake. This is a mistake on their part. I mean, it's not a mistake in that they're wrong. I mean, 12,000 stadia is about 1,500 miles. But by changing changing the numbers, by, by changing... by what am I trying to say? Uh, by converting the original units into modern units of measurement, it destroys the numerical parallels that we have seen throughout the book of Revelation. We've already seen that uh, all through the book that 12 and multiples of 12 are always used to show fullness or completion. You know, we had the 144,000, which is the complete number of God's people. We had the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, the 24 thrones, multiples of 12 uh, uh, denoting fullness and completion. And here we see the same thing. Uh, we have 12,000 stadia and a wall, 144 cubits. The city is perfect. The city is complete. Each measurement is a multiple of 12, denoting the, the, the people of God in their uh, fullness. If you transfer, if you, if you uh, convert that into 1,500 miles, what it sounds like is you're just given the landscape. You know, you're given the, the measurements, but you miss the significance that this is all the way through the book. Twelve and multiple of twelves have been used for the people of God. And so here again, we see multiples of 12 in the city showing this is the city of the people of God. It is perfect. And we also see that the, the city is a perfect square. Now, that's kind of weird. That's kind of strange. Um, if you're like me, you know, you've you've probably heard lots of sermons about the, the big square golden city moving from platform to platform or whatever, like, you know, whatever. Uh, but I don't think that's what John means. Now, we haven't gotten to it yet, but in verse 18, he's going to say that the city is made of pure gold. So we have this golden cube coming down out of heaven. It almost sounds like it almost sounds like something out of a science fiction movie. Of course, people are going to come up with all kind of interpretations about, you know, I don't know, like the Borg cube or something like that or, or whatever. But if you know your old Testament, if you understand the temple imagery steeped in the imagery of the temple and the tabernacle and the worship of God, 
you understand exactly what's being said here. Are there any golden cubes in the Old Testament? Golden squares in the Old Testament? Why, as a matter of fact, there are. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20. It's in Solomon's temple. It's in the building of Solomon's temple. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20 says, The inner sanctuary, which is the Holy of Holies, was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height, and he overlaid it with pure gold. The Holy of Holies in the temple of Solomon was a square, a perfect square of pure gold. Now, if you're reading this, and all of a sudden the new city, the new Jerusalem, which is uh, dimensions or multiples of 12, the number of the people of God, and this is a perfect square, and it is covered with gold, your mind, if you understand the worship of God, if you were steeped in the Old Testament, and you understood you had been raised to worship God in the pattern of the Old Testament, this would have clicked with you. It's it, it'd be like it'd be like me showing you a, uh, a a pointed thing on the top of a building. Immediately, you'd say that's a steeple. That's a steeple to a church. I know exactly what that is. Uh, even if there was different, you know, there were differences in different steeples. That's what you've grown up understanding as you know. Uh, it's not a symbol of worship, but you know what I mean when I say that. They understood that the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go in. This was a perfect square. It was made to be a perfect square. It was commanded that these are the measurements that you will make it, and it is a perfect square made of pure gold. But what do we see here? The Holy of Holies, where God's glory dwelt, only the priest could enter, was a perfect square overlaid with gold. I hope you can see what John's saying. The whole city, the whole creation, the new heavens and new earth, a perfect golden square is the true Holy of Holies. It is now the dwelling place of the Shekinah glory of God. It is where all those whose names are in the book of life will dwell. The veil has been rent. There's no longer any separation between man and God. No longer does a high priest go in to uh, intercede for me. But the true high priest, Jesus, has already gone in. So I will dwell and those believers will dwell in the Holy of Holies with God. Just as Adam walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day will dwell physically with him in a new creation and the entirety of it will be the sanctuary of God's presence the in the beginning I'm not going to take you through a big thing about Genesis. Go to the Genesis podcast and and you can hear all those all these things as we're we're still walking through it. I think we're in chapter eight or chapter seven right now. But uh, God's purpose was that the garden that was in Eden would expand and grow until it covered the earth, and the entire creation would have been God's perfect sanctuary filled with the image of God. That's why Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with my image. And it was lost. It was, it was, uh, they failed. It was destroyed and the curse came. And now we see the fulfillment of what all the way back in Genesis was supposed to be the plan that the earth, the entire creation would be the sanctuary of God filled with his image, the city. 
uh, verses 19 through 21. We're going to try to speed up just a little. I know we're taking a long time. It says the foundation stones, which is the same word that we saw before. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was Jasper. The second Sapphire. The third Chalcedony. The fourth Emerald. The fifth Sardonyx. The sixth Sardius. And it goes on and on and on until it says, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city notice street singular the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass now i'm not going to go through all these different jewels and try to give you some spiritual meaning behind all of them trust me that's been done and uh, i don't know if it has been done very well um i don't think that's very helpful i don't think that's what what john is intending us to understand each of the 12 stones remember that's why i said uh the uh, on the 12 foundations or the 12 foundation stones uh was written the a name of the apostle of of the lamb and then here these same stones these same foundations are said to be these precious jewels and that's where i derive the imagery from exodus and the precious jewels on the ephod of the high priest with the names of the tribes of israel on them as he goes into intercede before god uh, greg beale in his commentary on revelation said the list of 12 jewels according uh, adorning the foundation stones of the wall is based on a list in Exodus 28:17 through 20 that's where we talked about the high priest and 39:8 through 14 of the 12 stones on the high priest's breastplate of judgment which was a pouch containing the 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 Urim and Thummim. Uh, I'm not going to big thing about that. Eight of the stones in Exodus are repeated here in Revelation 21, 19 through 20, and the different the differently named stones in Revelation are semantic equivalents to the ones in Exodus. So these same twelve stones are the stones that we see on the on the breastplate of the high priest as he goes in to to intercede before God. And here we see this intercession this intercession, this going in with the names on the stones before God is the foundation of this city. It is by the intercession of the gospel, by the intercession of Christ, uh, through the preaching of his gospel, that this city is founded, this city is built, and that people are allowed into the names are written into the book of life. Uh, the stones in the breastplate of the high priest were arranged in four rows. You can go read that in Exodus 28. Uh, but also in Isaiah 54, uh, verse 11 and 12, it says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. And your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates crystal and entire wall of precious stones. And so you see over and over again the, the idea of these stones. If you go back far enough, you can see that these uh, precious stones were present in the, temp in the temple. They were present in the tabernacle. They were present in the Garden of Eden. If you read, I believe it's Isaiah 14. Uh, uh, that may not be right, but I believe it's where where God is condemning the uh, the uh, the king of Tyre, and he switches and talks to Satan. He says, "You were in the garden," and it talks about all the jewels that were laid in the garden. If you go to Genesis chapter two, you can see the jewels that are there. Um, so what you see is a pattern uh, of of description that runs from the Garden of Eden through the Tabernacle, through the Temple, all the way into the perfected city of Jerusalem. 
And as we wind this up in, in verse 22, he says in Revelation 21, verse 22 says, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb are its temple. So God himself is the temple. God will dwell in the city as he dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Um, remember the Holy of Holies, the only, only the high priest could come, but now as all God's children will walk in his presence just as Adam did. Uh, and it says, you, you need to pay attention to the fact that it says God and the Lamb are the temple. The Father and the Son are both equated as objects of worship here. The, this is not, uh, this is a, this is something you can you can definitely talk to those guys that come knocking on your door on Saturday morning when they want to debate about the divinity of Christ. Here, the Father and the Son are the temple. The Father and the Son are the objects of worship. The triune nature of God is is pretty much presupposed in the worship in the new city. Uh, there will be no temple because the entirety of the city is a holy of holies. We'll be there with God. God won't dwell just in a single temple made with hands somewhere. He will dwell in the entirety of the new heavens and the new earth, as will we in perfect fellowship with him. Verse 23 says, and the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the lamb. classic uh, Old Testament imagery of the new and perfected eschatological city, uh, Isaiah 60 verses 19 through 22. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness of the moon will give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and for the days of your morning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands that may be glorified, the smallest one will become a clan and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. I read that entire section of Isaiah chapter 60, not just the part about the light, because in the very next verses of Revelation, Revelation 24 through 27, it says the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime for there will be no night. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean. No one who practice abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I read that entire section of Isaiah to show you where he was talking about the kings will come in and the nations will come come in the smallest one will be a clan and the least one will be a mighty nation uh, this goes with this is imagery that John is also taking in in his final verses of chapter 21 this is not just a temple for the Jews in the last days. It talks about the kings of the nations coming in. This is the city for all of those who are redeemed. Once again, in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 3 through 5, about the eschatological city, it says, Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in their arms. Then then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. There's another reference to the sea as the nations in Isaiah 60. And then in verse 25 and 26 of Revelation, we saw that the nations are going to come and worship God. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11, it also says your gates will be open continuously. 
That's what we just saw in Revelation. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. The I'm reading all these to show you that verses 24 through 27 uh, are almost direct parallels to the prophecies of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 60 about the perfected temple, about the perfected Jerusalem and what it will be. And of course, please don't miss in verse 27 that the criterion for entering the city, the only criterion for entering the city and for dwelling with God in eternal uh, in the eternal state in the new heavens and the new earth is that the name is written in the book of life. Uh, we've seen that no sin will enter. We've seen that all those that are murderers and slanderers and, and liars and cowards and, and those kind of things will not enter. But those who will enter are not said to be those who have their own righteousness that have refused to, uh, you know, that have uh, turned away from sin in, in, in such a measure. They have, they have reached the level of perfection needed to be into the city. It is those who have had their name written in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the ones who are eligible for citizenship in the city. And we've seen in the chapter before that all those who do not have their names in the book of life, they're not outside the city saying, dang, I wish I could get in. They are cast into the lake of fire where there will be eternal torment forever and ever and ever. So, what we are seeing, and we'll we'll finish this in the next chapter as we see the the uh, the the fulfillment of all things together, uh, is that we've seen the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, this city, this new Jerusalem. Uh, you know, it it may not necessarily be fifteen hundred miles wide, uh, but it is the perfection of all of what Scripture has been pointing toward from the very beginning of Genesis, and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There are not, there are not two people with two specific destinies and two. In, there is only one, and that is people who are in Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentile.